Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. It is Tuesday, May 10th, which means that we are one week away from the NBA draft lottery. And so, of course, that means that you could probably say this throughout the year, but certainly no better time than now to talk about the NBA draft. So we are doing a draft deep dives episode today, which of course means I am here with my draft deep dives co-host, Tyler Metcalf. Tyler, how are you doing this fine Tuesday afternoon? Nick, I'm fantastic. Uh, like you said, the draft lottery is just a week away and everything is going to change after that. So very exciting times. And the NBA playoffs have been a complete mess, but a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> so yeah, they, very good. Very excited to talk about these guys today. Somehow Sixers Heat ended up being the least toxic of these conference <laughs> semifinals, which is like unprecedented that any series with a Philadelphia team is the least toxic, but both of those teams, and that's by far the least toxic series, that's that's an accomplishment by the other six teams still in the playoffs. I mean, give it time. There, we, we still got a lot of basketball <laughs> to play, so, so, so things can take a drastic yeah. turn here, and, and I would be almost disappointed if it didn't. So we are going to talk today about two prospects who probably won't have their NBA futures affected that much by the lottery, but who knows, maybe one team gets drastically overconfident in one of these guys. And if they're going to get drastically overconfident in one of the two players that we are speaking about today, it would be the first player that we are speaking about, Jalen Williams out of Santa Clara, who has been a No Ceilings NBA favorite for quite a while now. Our No Ceilings colleague, Tyler Rucker, wrote about him earlier this year. And you focused for your most recent Friday Screener article on Jalen Williams as a pick and roll creator. So what are your thoughts on what you saw from Jalen Williams's pick and roll ability when you broke down the film? Just composure and every aspect of it it was it was just he was always calm he was always under control and he was always dictating the terms of the pick and roll and just never sped up never slowed down it's it was just really impressive how he just ran it exactly how he wanted to and took whatever the defense gave him whether that was a pull up three or you know he'd snake through the lane and get a layup or a floater or kick out to a shooter or you know dump it off to the roller whatever misstep the defense took, he was more than happy and eager to capitalize on it. And just whatever defensive scheme or look that opponents threw at him, it never rattled him the entire season. And, you know, that's even going against, I know people are, you know, whenever Jalen Williams gets talked about, I know people are going to talk about, oh, well, the competition. It's like, okay, well, he looked really good against Gonzaga twice. He looked really good against San Francisco, against St. Mary's. Like, these are all tournament teams and teams that were, like, top 25. Like, these are really good teams. And he looked the exact same against them as he did against the lesser competition that they faced. So the fact that he's not this extraordinary athlete – but he still can control the pace and the speed and what the defense does. It's just really, really impressive. That's an excellent point regarding the control that he plays with. And specifically, as you mentioned, against Gonzaga, it's hard to find better college competition in college basketball than Gonzaga, especially this past season. And something that we've talked about a decent amount on here, certainly I've referenced it time and time again in referring to Darren Fox. It's often just as important, if not more important, to be able to vary your speeds and still play under control when, you know, decelerator or accelerating. And, you know, even if you're not the world's best athlete, you know, we see time and time again, the example that I always go back to is 
Luka Doncic, but James mm-hmm. Harden also works in the same yep. idea where if you're that good at staying under control and playing with that same kind of control, again, as you mentioned, you know, the competition argument, I think, kind of goes both ways for Williams in the sense that, you know, yes, maybe his average level of competition on a night in, night out basis isn't as strong as some prospects in college basketball, but you'd think that would lead to him being more out of control, you know, more unable to sort of mix up speeds and play with pace when he's playing against these better teams because it's not something that happens all that often. And, you know, instead of sort of shying away in the face of the moment, he continued to play with that same calm, cool, and collected flair in the pick and roll against even arguably the best team in college basketball this past season. Certainly a team that you can't really knock as a competitive opponent when you're talking about a team that, you know, again, was the number one seed and had the player that I think we both believe is the number one prospect in this draft class guarding the middle in Chad Holmgren. Yeah. And ju- just to run through a co- some of like his points per possession numbers here um, in the pick and roll, just overall, you know, he's in the 86th percentile as a pick and roll ball handler. His passes were in the 87th percentile when he took a runner after using the screen, he was in the 96th percentile and the 92nd percentile when he used the screen and took it to the rim. It's just, he got whatever he wanted and whenever he ran a pick and roll and he's not the, you know, a traditional or quote unquote traditional pick and roll operator given his position, but as like a second site creator or a, you know, someone who's coming off the bench to run a bench unit, that's a legitimately valuable tool and kind of variation that he can provide that a lot of guys who will likely play a similar role to him, at least, you know, at the start of his career, they're not going to be able to to provide that. And the fact that he has this experience and this composure and production for an extended period of time against a myriad of opponents, I, I think it it's going to do wonders for his draft stock. And we've, we've already seen it even just over the past couple of weeks where he is mm-hmm. skyrocketing up a lot of boards. And, you know, that you mentioned earlier, we were on him pretty early at no ceilings, but even as more and more of us continue to dive into his film, you know, we, we just kind of keep coming away impressed. And something particular that you mentioned later in the piece that I wanted to reference just because it's a topic that we have discussed numerous times this season in particular is how good he is in the mid range and especially with his floaters. And that's something that we've talked a lot about in particular with Kennedy Chandler, where, you know, if you can't get all the way to the rim, can you at least do something other than force up a shot that's not likely to go in? And Williams's incredible efficiency in the mid-range game, I think, is vitally important to his NBA future because it shows that you know even if you do keep him from getting all the way to the basket in pick-and-roll situations, he can still be very effective if you leave him an inch of space in the mid-range or you know, if he can't get all the way to the basket or can't find an open shooter to kick out to, it's not like the play is just going to sort of stall out in those situations. Yeah, it's so important because having that legit three-level scoring ability out of the pick and roll is going to be so important for him because he's not this quick twitch or explosive athlete. So, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if his at-rim finishing numbers are a little lower in the NBA, just given the, the spike in rim protection. But it's not like he was relying on mediocre athleticism to finish at the rim to begin with. It was all about craft and just taking whatever opportunities the defense gave him. And when they dropped all the way back to the rim, he would pull up for that little eight, eight to 10 foot floater or a 15 foot pull up. Or if they went under the screen, he would just knock down a three and just having that 
creativity and that effectiveness at all three levels and the patience to really just get to your spot and not rely on, you know, otherworldly athleticism is so important. And it just shows a really well-refined and really well-aware offensive game. That's also a counter argument to the people who are saying, oh, his level of competition wasn't good enough. You know, he's just dominating against lesser competition. Well, you know, he's doing so in a way that should prove to be successful against better athletes, against bigger rim protectors. You know, as you mentioned, it's not just like, you know, I am thinking about him in particular right now, but Thomas Robinson, where, you know, he was someone who, very different player, obviously, but, you know, the concept being, and this applies to Cliff Alexander too, so apologies to all Kansas fans, but, you know, the idea of, okay, you can, dominate athletically against lesser competition. And when you get to the NBA level, you can't just bully people out of the way anymore. That's not Jalen Williams's game. And so, okay, yes, the competition level that he's going to be facing in the NBA is obviously higher than he was facing at Santa Clara, but A, that's going to be true for every single prospect in college basketball. And B, the way that he was able to be successful in college basketball is not a way that relies on just being a better athlete than ever. Yeah, and those those uber freak athletes are, you know, they're, they're often some of the most enjoyable watches just because of what they're doing. So few of us can, but it, it really tests that scale of, okay, are you more athlete or are you more ball player? Are you somewhere in the middle? And Jalen Williams is firmly on the, he's just a pure basketball player. And the, the way he shows that in the pick and roll is just his constant understanding of whatever situation he's in. I think my favorite part about how he runs that pick and roll is his recognition of little pockets on the floor that open up and how, whether he needs to deliver a pocket pass to his roller, whether he needs to snake across the lane and get into that mid-range pull-up, or if he needs to stare down his teammate in the corner to hold that weak side defender on the rotation so that his roller has an easier bucket. And if that entails holding the pass for an extra second, so be it. It's just understanding not not only where his teammates are, but where the defenders are, what their plans are, what their counters and rotations look like, and what he needs to do to manipulate those. I'm really glad that you went there because we've talked mostly about his pick and roll scoring so far. And this, I think, is a perfect way to transition into his pick and roll passing, which looking at the numbers for his pick and roll passing, and I will let you read those if you like, but they are pretty stunning. I mean, Mm -hmm. he is successful at basically every passing play type out of the pick and roll. You know, it's not just something where, okay, he's a really good interior passer. And so his big men are going to feast in the pick and roll. You know, he, as you said, perfectly, he hits those tight little windows of space. You know, he doesn't let those opportunities pass him by essentially. And those windows are going to be smaller at the NBA level, of course, but his ability to see those windows and get the ball in through those windows to his teammates is really encouraging for his ability to be able to do that at the NBA level, especially since I think we would both agree he's not likely to be a primary ball handler at the NBA level. But, you know, if he gets in a secondary pick and roll, his ability to keep the ball moving, keep the play moving is going to be vital for him being able to continue to stay on the floor. Yes, yeah, so just just to run through the numbers real quick, uh, he was in the 80, 82nd percentile passing to the roller, 71st to spot up shooters, and the 82nd to cutters. In college basketball, having that high of percentiles in all three of those passing categories is just really absurd. 
Um, very rare. Very rare. Obviously, those numbers can be inflated if you're surrounded by like an elite rim runner or elite shooters. But he really wasn't at all. Like he he had some good teammates, but the the clips that I used in the piece, I thought were just perfect examples of how he reads the second and third levels of the defense and how he holds off ball defenders in their place or makes them make poor decisions. It's just really impressive eye manipulation. It's really impressive patience and composure and understanding of exactly what that low man is supposed to do. And then making him make the wrong decision to set up his teammate. It's, it's something we don't typically see from guys at Williams's position. Um, And it, how that translates at least in role to the NBA, I think is going to be absolutely fascinating. There's one play in particular that you added a clip of from Santa Clara against St. Mary's that I thought was really indicative. It's a high pick and roll and he holds the ball until exactly the right moment to hit his teammate cutting to the rim. And it's like, if he was a fraction of a second earlier, that pass is getting picked off by the defenders that are doubling him. If he's a fraction of a second later, the defense has already closed that gap. And he just, he holds onto the ball until exactly the right second. And it's not even the prettiest looking pass, but it's just so well-placed. And it's just very clear from that play that he waited until the exact right moment and when that moment came, he didn't hesitate. You know, it wasn't the prettiest pass. It wasn't the most perfect form, but the timing was absolutely right on. And that I think was a really, really strong showing from him in terms of what he can be as a pick and roll creator. Yeah. Like when, when we talk about playmaking, there are certainly more accurate passers or flashier passers or more creative passers than Williams in this draft class. But his ability to manipulate that second level is second to none. His, decision-making and timing is perfect on the vast majority of these passes, which is exactly what you just laid out because, and just having that ability to get the help defender leaning one direction and then immediately deliver that pass. That's all the window you need and likely all the window you're going to have in the NBA. So the, the fact that he's making these decisions quickly after, you know, moving those help defenders, I think is a really encouraging sign for how that playmaking and passing and just pick and roll creation is going to translate to the next level. And you mentioned his recent rapid rise up draft boards. And I think that actually ties in really well to something that we talked about pretty recently on this podcast, which is there aren't all that many elite, elite playmakers in this class. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, you know, I know Iverson Molinar is a shared favorite of ours. And part of that too is, you know, very similar in the idea of not being the world's flashiest passer, but someone who does an excellent job of reading the defense, knows when and where to make those passes and hits those passing windows basically every time. You know, there aren't all that many prospects in this class who are, you know, particularly standout playmakers. You know, if you're talking about creative and flashy, again, I would vote for Travion Williams as being really impressive in those two categories. But, you know, the overall passing talent in this class is not as good as it is most other years. And so when you get a player like Jalen Williams, who just makes all the right reads and makes all those passes when he needs to, it's, I think, very intriguing generally, but even more worth a look than usual in this particular draft class. Yeah. So frequently just just simply making the right decision and the right read and without hesitation and doing it on time 
is all you can ask for from a playmaker. And when guys get in trouble, when they try to do too much and deliver these no look live dribble, you know, one handed skip passes that they see guys like LaMelo or Giddy do, but those guys are in a separate tier of playmakers. They're in their own kind of rarefied error. And Jalen Williams is one of these passers and playmakers that guys should kind of model their game, model their game against because it's more realistic and it's just as effective. It may not make as many highlight reels, but the end result of setting your teammates up for the easiest basket possible, that's the end goal. And that's what he does on such a consistent basis. And not to go back to the well again, so no ceilings drinking game, go ahead. But, you know, what we've seen from the growth of players like Zach Levine and Devin Booker, it's Mm -hmm. if you have that once, you know, once in a generation is strong, but, you know, very, very few prospects have that sort of generational vision of a LaMelo or a Josh Giddey, as you mentioned. But the model of Jalen Williams slash, you know, what Devin Booker and Zach Levine grew into of, okay, let's you know, sort of cut down on the mistakes, you know, figure out what the right reads are, what the right passes are. You know, that's a skill that can be developed more than just the preternatural ability to read and see the floor. But the flip side is there are a whole lot of NBA players who just don't sort of develop that calm, collected kind of playmaking that Jalen Williams already has. You know, it's a skill that, you know, the two guys I just mentioned, they had to really work on and really develop. And it took a number of years before they got to the point where they were, at that level. And Williams is kind of there already. And and I think that all stems from just his ability to control the pace. And, you know, that stems from just his experience, his composure and, and his, you know, just on ball strength where he's rarely getting knocked off his route. He's rarely kind of getting disturbed the way he's able to kind of change the pace dribble and that herky jerky style of ball handling keeps defenders on their toes and he doesn't need a whole lot of space to either get a shot off or deliver a pass because he's so decisive. He knows exactly how much room he needs and when and where the ball needs to go. So all of that decision-making is just completely a symptom of his ability to control the pace whenever and wherever he has the ball. So just quickly before we move on from Jalen Williams' discussion, I'm curious about his shot because it seems like he's a pretty solid shooter. Certainly this past year, he was just below 40%. The year before wasn't that great, but he also had a very small sample size. So I'm sort of willing to throw out that 27% mark from last year, given he shot 35% of his first year and, you know, just under 40% this year, not to mention he's a high seventies slash even this past season, low eighties free throw shooter. I have every reason to believe in him as a shooter, but I'm curious sort of your thoughts quickly on his shot before we sort of move things along here. I, I, I fully buy it. And he's in the 97th percentile of spot ups. Um, sorry, uh, 97th percentile shooting off the catch, 100th percentile shooting off the catch when guarded. Um, I I think it's, yeah, it's, it's not bad. Um, It it drops off a little bit uh, shooting off the dribble to the 53rd percentile. And I think a lot of that stems from just the lack of explosiveness and just how much kind of space creation um, he's able to generate. So as an off-ball shooter, I buy it a lot more than on-ball, but I don't think his on-ball shooting is going to be, you know, a weakness per se. 
And this is also something that I brought up with Tevin Brown. I think it's a similar point. Mm-hmm. The fact that he's not that great of an off-the-dribble shooter isn't as important when that's not going to be his primary role. Right. Like, if he's going to be primarily an off-ball shooter, which it certainly seems like he's going to be, then, you know, the fact that he's sort of average at shooting off the dribble, but excellent at everything else, which is exactly the category that Tevin Brown falls under, you know, I think that's very promising for his NBA future because his biggest weakness as a shooter is also the area of shooting that is probably going to be least vital to his NBA success. Yeah. And I I would imagine that given his, you know, the the program he's coming from and his likely draft slot, I I would imagine he starts off as just one of these off ball shooters who then slowly develops into more of an on ball role, um, whether that's leading a bench unit or being more of a second side kind of pick and roll creator. Um, We'll see. But I, I I do think that it will, he, he has all the tools to grow out of just that pure off ball shooting role that I do think he will be really successful in um, pretty much from, from go. So last week for New Zealand's NBA, you wrote about Jalen Williams and his pick and roll creation. Last week, I wrote about Fresno State big man Orlando Robinson, who I was sort of intrigued about going into the deep dive in terms of preparing for that article. And I'm even more fascinated now. He's a seven footer who's surprisingly mobile for a seven footer who has a solid jump shot and there's every reason in my book at least to project that he will be a decent stretch five at the NBA level and there are reasons to be concerned about his defense but the box score numbers for his defense are staggering so I wanted to sort of start with you actually here because you know I think I'm very bought into Orlando Robinson after this past week so I'm curious for your thoughts on him and his game overall. He, he's a really interesting player. Um, I, I think the offensive tools are really obvious. The The defense I, I struggle with because, I, the, like you said, the, the metrics are solid, but it's the decision-making and the positioning from him. Um, a lot of you, – you did a really good job of pointing this out in your piece, but yeah. a lot of just, like, really bad gambles that have put his teammates in awful positions. Um, it, he reminds me a lot of Nas Reed. Who, um, you know, this big mobile big man or mobile center who can stretch the floor, who can kind of score out, score out of the role, who has some passing flashes, and the defense is either it's kind of feast or famine, where he's either really disrupting things and mucking them up, or kind of being completely unplayable. So it, it's tough because when you know you think about a guy like Nas Reed, he's a guy who went undrafted which that looks ridiculous now. Um, he's a very good backup center and he should have been drafted, but we don't see centers of that ilk get a whole lot of opportunity necessarily. Um, and so many of these teams just want defensive focused centers who can kind of be plugged in and just not kill a bench unit. I think the, Nasreed comparison is excellent here. And part of what I'm sort of thinking about with Orlando Robinson at this point is I think that he has a decently high floor given the kind of player he is, just as someone who, if you use him very similar to Nasreed, honestly, as a guy who can stretch the floor as a big man who has a solid offensive toolkit, you know, he's not just purely a Ryan Anderson, like he's only going to shoot threes, right? He's got. Right. 
a solid post game. He showed real improvement this year as a passer, which I think is incredibly encouraging. And, you know, that combination of skills on the offensive end, I think means that there's a pretty decent chance for him to find a role as like a 10 minute a game spot minutes kind of big man off the bench. And I don't think, I think that's a pretty reasonable 50th percentile outcome for him of like, Mm -hmm. He, you know, makes it to an NBA team either as a late second round pick or as an undrafted guy and sticks around for like five, six years as an end of the bench guy who can shoot and who has moments on defense. Now, the thing that intrigues me about his defense is because so much of his success by the numbers was just due to him making those gambles. I wonder if if he were put into a smaller role at the NBA level and was basically told like, look, you're going to lose minutes if you're making all these stupid gambles. You know, sometimes they generate steals. You know, he's great at getting in the passing lanes, but he also tries to jump those passing lanes too often. You know, if he gets a coach who says, look, you will get 10 minutes a game if you just stay solid on defense, you know, mostly as a drop guy, but he's much more mobile than your sort of typical drop big. You know, he wouldn't be useless in a switching scheme, right? I mean, you wouldn't want him out on the perimeter very often, but... He's not someone like, say, I don't know, Ennis Cantor slash Ennis right. Freedom, you know, who you, as soon as you put him in a pick and roll, it's just barbecue chicken, right? Like he's mobile enough to not be completely useless in anything other than a drop scheme. And on the offensive end, I do buy into his shot. And I mm-hmm. think that if basically he's just told, look, you get 10 minutes a game as a stretch big man and try not to make too many mistakes on the defensive end, I think that's a pretty decent floor of like a 50th percentile outcome for him but the flip side of that is given his athletic tools given his ability to be more on offense than just a shooting floor spacing big I think he also has a pretty high ceiling if everything goes right for him and you know a debate that I have often when thinking about early to mid-round second round prospects is how much do you want to value getting someone who you know can be a contributor in a small role versus how much do you want to take a home run swing and not to spend too much time on a baseball analogy on a basketball podcast, but with Orlando Robinson, it's like, you're not, you know, going for one of those two things. You're kind of hitting a double, right? It's not like you're bunting out a single, you know, you're going to get on base and that's going to be great, but you're also not, you know, taking a giant swing and maybe you'll whiff or maybe you'll hit it into the upper deck, right? It's just someone who has sort of this solid baseline of production that they could have. But if everything goes right, you know, if you hit the ball just to the right part of the park and you've got a guy who's fast enough, who knows, maybe, you know, the ball kicks off the wall weirdly and you get an inside the park home run. It's not very often that that happens, but it's a possibility with Robinson that when I'm sort of debating the dichotomy in my mind of, do you take someone who you know can play basketball and contribute in a small role versus do you take the home run swing? you get a little bit of the best of both worlds with Orlando Robinson. Yeah. And I, I think that 10 to 15 minute role that you kind of outlined is probably the most likely for him. Um, yeah, the, the big thing is just who is he on defense and mm-hmm. can't, is he someone who's, cause I, I, I fully buy in on the offensive skills being good enough. Um, you know, I don't think he's going to be Carl Anthony Towns as a shooter, but I think he's going to be mid, 30s and then he has the athleticism and mobility to attack closeouts and you know stuff like that so along with the improved passing ability um so i i I do think offensively he has 
kind of everything you need or could hope for, but it's who is he on defense? And is he, is he someone who can survive in a drop scheme just for 10 to 15 minutes? Um, or can he actually thrive and be, you know, a net neutral defender while his offense is a positive and, you know, then while he's on the floor, his team is winning those minutes. I'm a little more hesitant on that, just given his just defensive decision-making. It could very well be situationally dependent there. We see that all the time with college guys. Um, you know, Tari Eason is another kind of guy, and a, a, a very different player, but the the high-pressure chaos scheme that LSU played defensively, I think, led to potentially some inflated defensive metrics with him. Um, so it, it, it's just really tough for me because when you think about who Orlando Robinson is as a player and then try to find comps or guys with big roles in the NBA at that position with that similar skill set, there aren't a lot of them. And fit and situation, it's obviously important for everyone, but I think for these offensively focused centers who are, at least in my mind, a, a big question mark on defense – their fit, their situation becomes so important because they, they can be game wreckers off the bench and completely turn things around based on the matchup, but then they can also get quickly schemed off the floor depending on who you're playing. So that what he does on defense is going to be the biggest swing for him because I, I fully agree with you that I am I, I completely buy all of the the offensive skills and everything he showed this year. So the defensive side, you sort of hinted at this, but I think with the defensive side, it's interesting because he was the primary offensive engine for the Fresno State team. And, you know, how much of his defensive decision-making was, you know, he really does just get too excited about trying to make those gambles and just is going to go for it every time. And how much of that is okay, you know, rather than playing solid defense for 30 seconds, I'm just going to take a gamble here and see how it goes. You know, I think that if you were, I mean, he is going to be in a much smaller role in the NBA than primary engine for his team, right? So I think that there's an element to his defense that is just gambles that he wouldn't make as a role player trying to stick in the NBA that he feels much more comfortable making in the Fresno State environment. But you're right that defense is definitely the question mark for him. It's interesting because you mentioned him as sort of a net neutral possibility on defense and that really he would contribute value by being an above average offensive player who, as long as he can get to net neutral on defense, is going to be able to earn minutes. And it's funny because I think that the way he gets to net neutral is not by you know overnight just becoming this really smart positional defender, but rather that he cuts down just enough on his gambles that he only takes them, you know, when they're more reasonable to take. And so therefore, okay, there are still going to be a couple of possessions every game where he just gets blown by and looks foolish and maybe makes his teammates look foolish by making a crazy gamble. But, you know, if he's making three of those a game and one of them turns into a wide open transition dunk and the other two, you know, create lanes for the defense, you know, again, I think as long as he is solid the rest of the time other than those few gambles i think that his athleticism and mobility mean that he'll at least be able to be helpful in a defensive scheme as long as he doesn't you know sort of force himself out of position too often and i think the odds of him staying solid on defense when he's trying to carve out a role in the nba 
are just much higher than the odds of him doing that is basically a 20 point per game scorer in Fresno state. Yeah. Um, I know my, my, my pushback on that would be that NBA coaches haven't proven to be the most, um, patient human beings on the face of the earth. Um, so, so, you know, if, if his first defensive possession, he's trying to jump a passing lane and completely whiffs and they get a wide open dunk out of it. I, I can't imagine his coach being super thrilled about that. Um, I, I think it's also important to note that, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, it's like, oh, well, he'll just if he can just hold his own in a drop scheme. That's a lot easier said than done. And at least in the tape that I've seen, um he spent a lot of time more at the level and kind of switching and just being, you know, aggressive on the perimeter and very few NBA teams have their bigs playing that far out and playing that aggressive in the pick and roll. So I I do think that he's going to have a lot of work to do learning the drop scheme that a lot of that, I, you know, most of the NBA runs on defense and NBA ball handlers and scorers have kind of perfected that cat and mouse game. And if he's kind of trying to learn on the fly, I think that could be a, a much bigger learning curve than we may initially think. I think this also sort of ties back to the discussion we had recently about Isaiah Mobley, where when I mentioned him as a power forward type, all of a sudden we thought very differently about his defense. I think the difference here, though, is that Orlando Robinson is not going to be a four at the NBA level. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty certain of that and so with Mobley you know you can get away with and not only get away with but be really valuable as a roving perimeter guy as long as you have that rim protector behind you and with Robinson he's gonna have to kind of try and be both and his rim protection I think is better than Mobley's but it's still not fantastic and you know he can't be the only guy roving if he's also the last line of defense in the paint so it's a little bit of a different sort of positional quagmire for him than it would be for Mobley, who I think reasonably can be a four in many more situations than Robinson. Yeah, I, I would trust Mobley a lot more kind of defending primarily on the perimeter um, like that than I would with Robinson. Um, so yeah, I, I I would be stunned if we see Robinson play a four, um, you know, except in some experimental lineups in the middle of the season where the coach is just trying to find something that clicks and um you know the the, the timberwolves have tried to go back to the nas reed comp um the timberwolves tried that with carl anthony towns and nas reed now neither of them are particularly exquisite defenders so so those lineups you know pretty quickly crashed and burned um so i you know i i think it's a kind of a novel concept of oh look we got this seven footer who can stretch the floor and, you know, attack off the bounce, but it's a lot, you know, it's not that easy to find a pairing with him. So I I would be really, really surprised um, if he did end up playing the four. And I think it'd be really easy for the opponents to kind of go small and just mismatch him to death pretty quickly on the perimeter. And maybe this is actually an indictment of him more than it is praise, but I think that, he would work really well alongside DeMontis Sabonis, you know, covering mm-hmm. up for him in a lot of ways, but you're also risking a lot with that defense. Yeah. The flip side is I think if you're trying to model yourself after the Sacramento Kings, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's not exactly the most positive statement I could make about Orlando Robinson, but 
I think it is telling, though, in a way that the issue with him is much more decision making than ability. I mean, with his athleticism Mm -hmm. and mobility, you know, if he there is a world in theory where he figures it out. Right. Like if we're talking nine, you know, as I was talking earlier about how, you know, maybe everything goes right and he turns out to have really high ceiling as a second round pick. You know, if everything goes right, 95th percentile sort of outcome. I could definitely see a world in which he, you know, figures it out on defense, cuts dramatically down on his gambling, figures out where he needs to be and when, you know, it's not like he's someone who just, you know, you look at him running the floor and it's like, yeah, it's it's never going to happen, right? He has the requisite athletic tools. It's just, can he figure out the decision-making? And it is much, much harder to figure out the decision-making than I think a lot of people believe it to be. But the flip side is it's, possible right there's a theoretical world where it happens whereas with you know say zach Eady, i don't think either of us is ever going to expect him to be a mobile roving big in the way that again in theory orlando robinson could be if everything breaks right yeah and i I think something that kind of works in his favor too is you know something we've talked about in the past with our how we approach the center position with draft prospects and kind of the replaceability sure that's a word um of Mm -hmm. that position and team's willingness to kind of experiment or try guys on the cheap and we've seen undrafted or second round picks like your seven or Rashawn Holmes or you know Nas Reed all obviously those guys are all very different players in their own right but we've seen them kind of get picked up off the scrap heap and given an opportunity and it works out and then they that's how they get their contract so even if he doesn't get drafted I I don't I definitely don't think that's the end of his NBA story um, because teams are kind of always proving with that second or third center on their roster, they're willing to get a little weird, even if it's not a perfect option. Yeah. And, you know, something else that I think, and to be clear, I don't think this is the kind of player Orlando Robinson is. I think he's grown a lot as a passer, but nowhere near this much. But for me, it was really indicative when the Denver Nuggets signed DeMarcus Cousins and all of a sudden their bench units just became much, much better because obviously DeMarcus Cousins is not Nikola Jokic because nobody is Nikola Jokic. But when you talk about a center who can do things with the ball in their hands, who can shoot from three-point range and who is a really, really well above average passer, period, but especially as a center – all of a sudden, Denver's bench lineups made a lot more sense because they weren't replacing Nikola Jokic with someone who, you know, like Mason Plumley, who could do maybe two of the things that Jokic did, but not all of them. Instead, you're replacing him with someone like DeMarcus Cousins, who, you know, obviously, again, isn't Nikola Jokic, especially not at this point in his career, but checks a lot of the same boxes at like a 70% level that Nikola Jokic checks. And so if you're talking about Orlando Robinson, you know, maybe Denver makes sense for him as like a third string center who, you know, if he ends up not getting drafted, you can think of him as like, okay, he's grown a lot as a passer. He's a clear positive on offense. He's not just a stationary target with the ball in his hands. Maybe this works for 5-10 minutes a game. You know, as you mentioned, it's not just the sort of carousel of Nerland's Noel type rim running defense first centers. You know, there's a sort of a weird way in which his differentness from that sort of archetype makes it actually easier to project him finding his way onto an NBA roster because some team is like, Hey, this could be interesting rather than, Oh, okay, great. Another seven footer who can 
be a pick and roll player and rim protector and not do all that much else. Yeah. And it, it's just kind of an interesting spot in the roster that team builders can get a little creative with. And it's, do they want to find, you know, effects similarly of their starter or do they want to find someone who's the complete opposite and can kind of throw a, throw a change up at the opponent and really change the pace of, and the looks of what their, you know, lineup on the floor is looking like. And obviously all of that goes back into situation and front office and coaching staff and current roster construction. So I, I do expect him to wind up on an NBA team, whether that's second round draft pick or a two way or something. But I do think that there are enough options out there for him and enough and enough kind of creative coaching staffs where they will figure out some way to use them, whether it's an offensive spark plug for five to 10 minutes or, you know, Hey, you're kind of like our, our starter. Let's see if you can kind of help us tread water for 10 to 15 minutes. So it, it will be really interesting because I, I'm pretty confident that the offensive stuff will translate, you know, obviously not a hundred percent, but to, to a positive level, just what type of defender he ends up being, I think is going to be re- just really, really interesting. All right. Anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up? Would you go ahead and plug your article for Friday, please? Since this week you do actually know who it's going to be about. Look at me planning ahead. Just, just it's weird. What a concept. Um, yeah. So I'll have a piece on Christian Coloco's rim protection for Friday um, over on noceilingsnba.com. All right. Well, he is Tyler Metcalf. You can find him on Twitter at T-M-E-T-C-A-L-F-1-1. And as you mentioned, of course, you can find his written work on No Ceilings NBA. Definitely be sure to check out that article about Christian Coloco. We've talked about Christian Coloco sort of among some of the other center prospects in this class, but his room protection does really stand out. And I'm very much looking forward to reading that article on Friday. So be sure to check that out when it drops. You can also find Tyler's work on hashtag basketball, of course, as well as over at Canis Hoopus. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. And you can also find my written work on No Ceilings NBA and hashtag basketball as well as over at Nets Republic. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. Always much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.